So Matthew chapter 27, and we begin at the first verse. This is God's holy word. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by the, by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the thirty silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over 
to be crucified. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Beloved, at the heart of the biblical gospel is the arrangement of substitution. Instead of sinners getting what they rightly deserve, God has arranged for and provided a substitute to take the place of those who are guilty. I'm never surprised that there are false teachers in the church. We're warned about that in the Bible. But sometimes I am surprised at the kind of false teaching they can get away with, even in the church. And in recent days in our own country, in the United States, there have been those whose particular brand of false teaching has been to deny what is called penal substitutionary atonement. That what Jesus was doing on the cross, whatever he was doing, was not, they say, suffering the wrath of God in the place of his people. Wrath, penal, penalty, substitution, and exchange. They, they deny penal substitutionary atonement. Of course, you can understand why the devil would encourage that kind of false teaching, but I'm surprised because this doctrine of substitution is so woven into the fabric of Holy Scripture from the beginning of the Word of God to the end that it is amazing to me that any group of professing Christians could for one moment sit under teaching and preaching that would deny substitutionary atonement and not rise up and cry out against it. And yet it's happened. And it's happening. No, beloved, I hope you see that pictures of the grace of substitution go right back to the garden itself after the fall. When an animal is killed to provide clothing for Adam and Eve. When righteous Abel offers a sacrifice from his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering. When we come to the life of Abraham and his son Isaac, the son he loved, and we read Isaac's question, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham responds, the Lord himself will provide. When we see the people of God delivered from the house of bondage, the land of slavery in Egypt, by the blood of the Passover lamb. When we think of all the sacrifices that God instituted in the Old Testament, when we read in Leviticus 16 about the scapegoats who had hands laid on their heads, symbolically transferring the guilt of sin. No matter where you turn, it's all the grace and mercy of substitution. And of course, it all points to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. And the reality of substitution, the theology of substitution, the experience even of substitution is so clearly seen in one person in particular who was present at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. And I've called him as the title of the sermon is there in your bulletin, the third thief. The third thief. We usually think of two, and we heard about them this morning. One on the right, and one on the left, and the Lord Jesus at the center. But a third criminal's life was involved that day in a remarkable way. R.A. Finlayson said, Personally, I think that of all who were in the vicinity of the cross that day, I would be in the shoes of Barabbas. Barabbas had a wonderful angle on the cross. He could point to the middle cross and say, There would I have been if he hadn't been put in my place. Salvation sometimes may seem very theoretical. It may be preached in a way that's too academic. And so the gospel itself can sometimes feel abstract and theology discussed more philosophically than personally. But in Barabbas, we have an historical experience recorded for us, which I think can really help us understand and hopefully appreciate and embrace the gospel. I want to consider three things from this passage tonight. The first is what Matthew tells us happened that day in the first century in Jerusalem. And it's very simply this. The crowd chose Barabbas. The crowd chose Barabbas. We don't know much about Barabbas. We don't know much really even about the custom of a prisoner being freed at the time of the Passover. But the scene set out for us here in our text tonight is not hard to understand. In Mark's gospel, it's recorded as well. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. In Mark 15, 7, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And it's interesting, I mentioned it this morning in John 18, 40, Barabbas is called a robber or a thief. It's the same word of the thieves on the cross, robbers. But here, we hear more of the guilt that was Barabbas, that Barabbas was guilty of, uh, uh, committed murder in the insurrection. I don't think we should, should ever think of those who were crucified beside Jesus or this Barabbas as, as like shoplifters 
they were evildoers. There's no question of his guilt, it seems. Even if the Jews might have had good reasons to hate the Romans, he was an insurrectionist, and God says you shall not murder. And that's what Barabbas did. J.C. Ryle called Barabbas a wretched felon. But the gospel, as we said, the gospel writers tell us that at Passover, a custom had arisen in which a prisoner was set free. All the charges were dropped. Pilate had been examining and judging Jesus. He could find no fault in him. Pilate knew that Jesus should be released. His wife urged the same action. He tries to appease his conscience by publicly washing his hands of the whole affair. But according to the custom, the final say went to the crowd. Which of the two do you want? And you'd think when you've just heard a little bit about Barabbas, you'd think that they would want Jesus. He's innocent after all. What had Jesus ever done to harm them? God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, preached Peter in Acts 10, with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. There was a time when the crowds heard Jesus gladly. They came from far and wide to catch a glimpse of him and to hear him teach with authority, never having heard someone teach this way before. He fed them when they were hungry. He healed them when they were sick. He opened their blind eyes. He healed their deaf ears. He made the lame walk. He made the lepers clean. Barabbas was a notorious sinner, but Jesus was a remarkable teacher and healer. Surely they'll want Jesus. But I don't think we can really read the account that we have in the gospel here. Still, even if it's the thousandth time that we've read it or heard it. With still some surprise or some shock. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. And what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified crucified. The people understand 
in a way, it seems, though the fullness of what they said surely was beyond their imagination when they took responsibility with those words, let his blood be on us and our children. What a scene this is. No fiction could match what happened that day. This really happened. They really chose Barabbas. And I think when we read it, we may be left asking, how could they do that? We're often tempted to say that, I think, as we go through the pages of Scripture. We see Adam in the Garden of Eden listening, Adam and Eve listening to the devil rather than God. And we think, how could he do it? The Israelites being freed from Egypt and grumbling in the desert. How could they? The disciples with Jesus doubting and even at the time of his crucifixion running away. How could they do that? I think we often could wonder that. It's a very very proud thing to think that we in a similar situation wouldn't be right there as sad as that is. Because this history is not mere history. It's also a picture and an illustration and a great warning for us. Because that day in Jerusalem, the crowd chose Barabbas. But what we should always see as we think of our own lives is that often, in a spiritual way, we choose Barabbas. You say, well, I wasn't there. I never chose Barabbas. I wasn't part of that crowd. I would never do such a thing. But what happened that day is played out spiritually in every generation of human history. We haven't seen the cross with our own eyes. But the cross has been preached to us. We've read our Bibles Paul says to the Galatians, before your very eyes, Christ has been set forth as crucified. Christ is preached. And in Hebrews, the the writer says that spiritually, the historical scene can be repeated. Where he, he says, and of course we don't take this literally, this is speaking of a spiritual dynamic, Hebrews 6, 6. They are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, Christ died once for all. But you see, it's what they're doing spiritually because they are presented with Christ. People are presented with Christ and everything else, whatever it may be. And what do people do? What do you want? Do you want Jesus or this or that? The Barabbases. And what do people do? They choose Barabbas. What about Christ? Crucify him. Get rid of him. If anything, whatever, is keeping you back 
from giving your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are choosing something or someone rather than him. Some Barabbas is more attractive in your heart than the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate's question comes, you see, to every person that's heard of Christ. Who do you want? Who do you want? And what shall be done with Jesus? When we think of Jesus, people need to think of Jesus, who has given us his word. He's taught us many good things. We've heard him in his word. In our lives, in his grace as the Lord, he has fed us day by day. He's given us so much good eyes that can see, ears that can hear. Jesus has never done anyone any harm. Many people reject Christianity because of all the hypocrites in the church, they say. Well, here there is no hypocrite. Jesus. Here is a perfect man, a sinless human being. But more, here is God in the flesh. Here is the creator, the sustainer of all things. Here is the Lord of glory, full of grace and truth. Here is the one whom the Father loves and the angels worship. And all of heaven loves and worships him. But people choose Barabbas. In one way or another, people choose man rather than God. They choose self over the Savior. And they are crucifying again the Son of God. But even, listen, even as believers, there is a sense that we can at times choose Barabbas. And I think the vividness and the, the, how graphic this portion of God's word is should be a, a real help to us to see spiritually the depths of, of sin and sinfulness. Every time we sin, we are saying, in some sense, give me Barabbas. Away with Jesus. When a clear case of obedience or sin is before us, here's the question. Here's the question to me. Do I choose Jesus and his word and his ways? Or do I choose someone or something else? In a clear case where those cannot be existing together, Give me my pleasure away with Jesus. Give me my lust away with Jesus. Give me my material possession away with Jesus. Give me my, my friends and my relationships away with Jesus when those are in conflict. If Jesus tries to interfere with my life, Away with him. Crucify him. 
we can choose Barabbas. Is your conscience pricked about something that you've been choosing Barabbas instead of Jesus? Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, this is Acts 2, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Isn't it amazing that after we hear the crowds calling for Barabbas and calling for the crucifixion of Jesus, that there's still good news to be preached in the book of Acts? That there's forgiveness and grace to sinners who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even for Barabbas choosing sinners, there is grace and mercy and forgiveness because what was happening on that day was much more profound than any human eye could see. The crowd chose Barabbas. We may choose Barabbas as well, spiritually, in one way or another. But the most amazing thing about the account that we just read is that ultimately, God chose Barabbas. That God ordained that Barabbas would go free and that Christ would die. Were the Jews involved? Yes. Were the Romans involved? Yes. Was Pilate involved? Yes. But this man was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. The Bible tells us that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. Even the sinful acts of people are sovereignly overruled by a good God for good. How can a perfectly innocent Jesus suffer and die? We have sin. We would say with the thief this morning, if we are condemned, it is just and we are getting what we deserve, but not Jesus. Why should he be crucified? The wages of sin is death. Why should Jesus be crucified? Was God unjust? This morning we read from Isaiah 53. That's often called by Jews, Orthodox Jews, the forbidden chapter. Isaiah 53. One writer said, Isaiah 53 is a significant source of controversy, not just between Judaism and Christianity, but even within Judaism itself. Up until Christ came, the Jewish rabbis roundly agreed that Isaiah 53 was a prophecy about the Messiah. 
But once the Christian gospel started to spread, this chapter in Isaiah began to cause problems within Judaism because of its overt resemblance to the life and work of Yeshua, Jesus as the Messiah. According to one Jewish scholar, Eitan Barr, the 17th century Jewish historian Raphael Levi admitted that long ago the rabbis used to read Isaiah 53 in synagogues. But after that chapter caused arguments and great confusion, the rabbis decided that the simplest thing would be just to take that prophecy out of the Haftarah, the readings in the synagogue. That's why today, when we read Isaiah 52, we stop in the middle of the chapter And the week after, we jump straight to Isaiah 54. That's something. There are millions and millions of Jews today who have never heard Isaiah 53. The forbidden chapter. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Charles Spurgeon said, This episode in the Savior's history shows that in the judgment of the people, Jesus Christ was a greater offender than Barabbas. And for once, I may venture to say that the voice of the people, which in itself was a most infamous injustice, if it is read in light of the imputation of our sins to Christ, was the voice of God. Christ, as he stood covered with his people's sins, had more sin laid upon him than what rested on Barabbas. In him was no sin. He was altogether incapable of being a sinner. Christ Jesus is holy, harmless, and undefiled, but he takes the whole load of his people's guilt upon himself by imputation. And as Jehovah looks upon him, He sees more guilt lying upon the Savior than even upon this atrocious sinner, Barabbas. And so Barabbas goes free, innocent, in comparison with the tremendous weight which rests upon the Savior. Think, beloved, then, how low your Lord and Master stoop to be thus numbered with the transgressors. Do you see how Barabbas must have personally experienced the substitution that was true in a much greater and a spiritual way in Christ that day. Because we all stand convicted of sin, like Barabbas. But Barabbas was set free. That middle cross was his, but someone else was dying on it. Now, we don't know what happened to Barabbas spiritually or otherwise. But that day, in that way, he was set free. He lived because another man died. 
in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, Jean Valjean is trying to escape his criminal past. And he gets himself cleaned up. He assumes a false identity as a cover. But one day, a man they think is Valjean is arrested and about to be condemned. And stepping into the court and seeing another man in his place, the conscience of Valjean is pricked. He said, I thank you, Mr. District Attorney, but as you shall see, you were on the point of committing a great error. Release this man. I am fulfilling a duty. I am that miserable criminal. I am the only one here who sees the matter clearly, and I am telling you the truth. God, who is on high, looks down on what I am doing at this moment. Who am I? 24601. He's convicted of sin when he sees another one suffering in his place. And when we see Jesus, the Lamb of God without spot or blemish, suffering for sin, it should convict us of our sin. But conviction of sin never saved anyone. We need to look to Christ in faith as the Lamb of God. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Barabbas was set free that day in an earthly, temporal way. But if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. If thou my pardon hast secured and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, Payment God cannot twice demand, first from my bleeding surety's hand, and then again from mine. How Barabbas must have understood substitution that day. May by God's grace we see the glory, the beauty of gospel substitution in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson was once speaking to a man who was recently converted from another part of the world who just had a very simple baby faith. And his English wasn't that good. And as Sinclair Ferguson was interacting with him, he said, tell me your story. Tell me how you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And the man simply said, he die, I know die. He died. I know die. Beloved, if you've received Christ as the Lamb of God, in your freedom, you will love the one who took your place on that cross. The one who loves Barabbas's, like you and like me. Barabbas means son of a father. And that's who we are in Christ, dearly loved sons and daughters. What Barabbas did the rest of his life, we don't know. But what you and I must do, we do know. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who died for them and was raised again.